0: Welcome
1: to Tech Junior. Hey everybody, we have a great show today. We're talking to Amelia Bennett, who is a data scientist. So this is one of our more challenging episodes to listen to because of the amount of technical terms and math and that sort of thing that we get into when talking about data science. But uh, Amelia does a great job of describing Uh, the different ways that you can get into the field and sort of like the different caveats of data science work so i hope you enjoy it if you want to support the show please head on over to techjr.dev and click subscribe uh, and tweet us at techjrpodcast and let us know uh, how you feel about the show also uh, tell your friends and spread the word and we appreciate you so thanks for listening and enjoy the show Uh welcome to Tech Junior. My name's Lee Warwick. I'm a full-stack JavaScript developer. Have with me Eddie, as always.
0: Hey, it's Eddie, uh front-end
1: developer. And we have with us a special guest. We have <laughs> Amelia Bennett. Uh Amelia, if you could introduce yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Amelia. Um I crunch data. Uh supposedly they started calling people like me data scientists, but now I just do stuff. <laughs>
1: That's great. Um, we're really excited to have Amelia with us on the show today because uh, data science is a exploding uh, portion of the industry, and mm-hmm. it's very easy to get confused on what is data science, what is machine learning and AI and all those sorts of things. So who better to tell us about it than an actual uh, True Blue data scientist? So uh, maybe if you could start with... um how you got into data science and kind of like maybe what you studied in school and all that good stuff.
2: Sure. So way, way, way back way too long ago, um, I stumbled into AP stats back in high school and it really stuck with me. And so I rolled into UF. I kept doing statistics and I, I was a crazy person. I tried doing too many things, but statistics stuck up with me and I tried doing the crazy thing i tried carrying a bachelor's and a master's in the four years that was a bad idea but that's life but um so that happens and somehow along the line um statistics started replacing all of the s's with dollar signs and then it became data science or something like that (laughs) um so it's i kind of stumbled into it i'm wouldn't say I deliberately sought to become a data scientist. It's just that's what they called people doing that math and code, you know.
1: Okay. Um. So I guess primarily your focus in school was on math and statistics.
2: Yep. So I I just kept loading up on stat courses, really. Um. I had a grand total of one coding course, so that was Fortran, awesome. and. <laughs> <laughs> What? Well, no. So it was you were required to take either Fortran or C plus plus for the statistics degree. It's a hard uh, choice. It, is it a hard choice?
1: Uh, I don't think I would. I would not do well in either one of those languages. I don't think.
2: Yeah. What's so? You need Fortran because Fortran is fast. Um, right. So other than that, lots of math, lots of stats, and a little bit of code, and. Um, well, I it, it kept coding, I guess, because coding is how you go from math to doing actual interesting things. Um, I, that's a good way to put it. Um, th- there's the old joke about how math is to masturbation as physics is to intercourse. Well, statistics <laughs> and data science is outright prostitution. So
1: <laughs> We're... Uh... We're a non-explicit show, so... Let's, let's okay, not, I didn't
2: say anything explicit.
1: Let's not get too far into that one, but that is okay. hilarious. <laughs> so, um, you took your, your Fortran course and kind of kept going with uh, with crunching numbers with, with code. So, what was your languages that you used, and uh, what do you use today? Let's
2: see here. Languages. Um I started out with SAS because statistician and then I went into R. So then Fortran, (laughs) then after Fortran, uh, Fortran kind of died off. I got into MATLAB because school and I had to, um, I didn't start fiddling with Python until about 2016. So it, that was my first real, actual can do something that makes money language because R is great, but you can't really use R to do fun and interesting things.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I've heard of R, but I don't really know a ton yeah. about you it. You don't use from... it unless
2: you're a statistician.
1: Fair okay. enough. I, I am not. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so, you, I guess, Python's like, you know, super popular nowadays people are shouting i love python from the rooftops um
2: really i thought all the people were after javascript
1: javascript has definitely been up there with python but uh python is is definitely holding its own and javascript was not always beloved uh people used to make fun of javascript a lot so yeah um, recently it's taken off because of you know lots of frameworks and whatnot but yeah yes. uh, so we learned uh, recently that Python has been around for quite a while, um, like something like 30 years, right?
2: <laughs> I just code with it. It's somehow Python sort of became the lingua franca of machine learning. So there's that, that value happen. to it. And Python is also one of the better languages for DevOps work. Go figure. <clears throat> so um it's, it's great language, especially if, you know, you're after going for money. Fair enough.
1: So mm-hmm. going back to, to data science, um, it's people say it and you're like, oh, yeah, big data, big data and kind of all these buzzwords and stuff. But kind of like, what is data science? Like, what, what do you do as a data scientist?
2: So there have been people who have been heavily motivated to water down the term. So there's this wonderful um, Birchworks report where they drew the line between predictive analytics professionals and data scientists. And the key difference between a predictive analytics professional and your data scientist, as defined by Birchworks, was that your data scientist is going to handle unstructured data and could handle all of the heavy lifting and code around it. So we're talking text, we're talking images, we're talking video, we're talking speech, we're talking something as strange as, say, infrared spectroscopy, or um, mass specs, or things of that nature. So instead of dealing with straightforward columns of, okay, these are all your variables, take them and go. So that was their definition of what's going on. So as things have changed and the title has been eroded, altered, so on and so forth, it's also a very new industry. So people are still doing things. So... When you think of the newer data science, there's you can break out into three areas that roughly correspond to three different backgrounds with various sort of proficiencies. So there's the analytics side of data science where you're monkeying around with Tableau, and all you're really after is producing insights and using them to drive actionable business goals. There is more your algorithm side where you're you have the strong coding background and you write code, you make things run well, so on and so forth. You come up with different ways of doing things, you do graph database work, things like that. And then you get over to inference, which is your more math stats background where, okay, so suppose I want to know this thing. How do I figure that out? How do I say for sure that what I am working with is knowledge and not some random signal that's blowing smoke up my rear? Um, so combine the three, and that's roughly where data science is. So
1: at which one would you consider that you fall into?
2: It's really relative. Um, so one gig, um, I was not the best coder in the group. And so I stuck with more map stats. Um, the current gig I'm on, uh, nobody there can code very well. So I'm doing a lot of the code heavy lifting. But I'm much more firmly in algorithms and inference. I don't really do all that thought on the analytics side because in my experience, people on the business want to do their own analytics. They want to get their Excel spreadsheets and do their things. Um, they want, you know, you give them a shiny dashboard and the first thing they ask for is, well, where's the actual data? How do I see what's going on? So I feel like business people need to own that in order for data science to be taken up versus, you know, okay, I can give them a dashboard, but they do, just because you produce a dashboard doesn't necessarily mean they have what they want.
1: Would you say that you're more on the side of things where you're creating and preparing data sets?
2: Um, that's toughy. So... I mean, data is data, and somehow you have to get it. Um, I've never thought about having to clean data for somebody, but yeah, I guess I do have to do that these days. Like, (laughs) well, no, it's somebody will, some database somewhere will have a really dirty pile of text stored, and just because they output it as a CSV file doesn't necessarily mean you can read it back in. And so, yeah, no, I had to go clean null characters out or things of that nature. So I, yeah, I do the machine learning work and I do the data cleaning for people. So that is one of the curses of being one of the more senior people on your team is that other people will be blocked by dirty data and you have to go, you know, be an overpaid janitor and clean it for them. <laughs> I'm serious. 80% of my job is janitorial work, the other 20% is fortune telling.
1: That is that's I I feel like I need to be writing these down, all these one-liners. Yeah. This this is great. <laughs> so um we we recently uh tried out some Python ourselves. We uh we had a meetup. We did and, some
0: data yeah, cleanup.
1: We did a little um cleaning of data sets. And okay. uh it, it wasn't what I thought. Um no. I kind of thought it would be more uh, like, interpreting the data and kind of, like, looking at what belongs and what doesn't. And it was like, oh, well, if you have a an entry that is missing a column or something, or, like, we don't have a location yeah. in this one entry, like, we want to remove that and not put it in the data set or, or something like that. Or converting, like, uh, okay, they called this... Um, we were looking at crime data, so, like, okay. location yeah. space of space crime or something in the CSV. Oh, we want to convert that to underscores. underscores. Yeah. So people say cleaning data in it like really sounds like this room full of scientists doing it, right? <laughs> and and it was totally not <laughs> like that at all. So uh it was it was really eye opening when we when we got into that.
2: Nope. Twenty first century dirty job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. On a on a day-to-day, do you do a lot of
2: machine learning work? When we think about work, when we think about project structures with data science, um, I'd say eight. You get eighty percent of the gains out the door very, very quickly. So, okay, so if you want to do a text classifier, uh, just just a binary classification example with text, you can get most of the results very, very quickly. I'm assuming this is a suitably small data set. So let's say 10, 20,000 observations. You're going to get most of the lift very, very quickly by taking the text, um, applying a term frequency inverse document frequency transformation, applying SVD to it, and then feeding it into a logistic regression or elastic net. And that gets you most of the way there. So the machine learning work isn't get points on the board because you've already got points on the board it's come up with better ways to do this. So we can justify paying your salary instead of, you know, hiring data robot. So that's my machine learning work is how do we, you know, roll a, a bespoke model where we are fully interrogating the business and bringing their business knowledge in versus something out of the box.
1: A lot of that explanation was... a a little over my head. I was gonna say, am I an idiot
0: for not understanding half of what she said? I'm sorry. Okay, that's... so
2: I'll just type out the pipeline here in chat. So, oh no, you can find this all in SK Learn really quickly. So,
1: that's a uh, scikit-learn. Yes. Okay. These are functions in that in that library. Yep. Awesome. So, what mm-hmm. what do those like in general? Uh, what do those functions do?
2: So let's start with, well, okay, we have a giant pile of text and we want to, you know, do machine learning on it. Well, how do we give this pile of text structure? So the simplest way of doing it, simplest, most naive way of doing it is to create a vector for every single word that you've seen and say, yes, I've seen that word, or no, I didn't see that word. So you've basically one-hot encoded all of the words for that text. Um, That is the simplest way of doing it. So the next way up is to instead of say, so we still have all of these vectors of words, and instead of saying, yes, we saw that word, or no, we didn't, instead we count the number of times we've seen that word. So now what we're going to do, so that's our term frequency. Now, because, okay, we're going to see some words a lot and we're not going to see some words so much. And the words that we don't see a lot of, well, they're informative, but they're rare. Uh, the words we see a lot of, they don't tell us that we squat. So we won't really want the ones in the middle to help us. So that's where this inverse document frequency transform comes in to where we're reweighting through words of interest to say yes this is a really important word no this really isn't an important
1: word maybe we should uh kind of talk about what machine learning even is just real briefly um i've yeah. i've heard it described as there there's no such thing as like uh ai there's only like prediction um so the really we're we're training up a algorithm that can you know give us a it can interpret something and tell us with a certain percentage of confidence, either what it
2: is or what it thinks it is. So, let's see here. What's the old joke? It's not a PowerPoint, it's AI. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's see. If it, it's Python, it's machine learning. No, that's not the one.
0: So No, I think you're, you're close. You're close. And then if it's AI, it's PowerPoint.
2: There's an intermediate step in there where we eventually get to, okay, what they really mean is logistic regression. So really, um, for a bank gig, 80% of what you do will be covered by logistic regression. And it's nice and it's beautiful and it has theory. And yes, you can say within a 95% confidence bound, this is what I think the true coefficient is. Uh, you can do that. That is that is the basis for machine learning. People don't start getting tickled pink until they hear, oh, well, you can do better than a human on this task. And that's where we're back to things like natural language inference or computer vision, object detection, that kind of thing. Okay. And then what would,
1: I guess, what's the term for that sort of thing?
2: Machine learning on unstructured data.
1: Um, okay. I guess most of kind of the things that, uh, we would maybe start with if we were trying to get into machine learning would be like, you know, is it like the hot dog, not hot dog kind of thing? Right. That's, that's (laughs) an easy one
2: or cat versus dog. So, you know, you can, there are all kinds of like, so Keras is the really easy way to get into it. And you can just go find all kinds of nifty little Paris tutorials that, you know, okay, congratulations, very quickly, you can do these things.
1: So then beyond that, is the better-than-humans-can-do sort of realm?
2: So, like, you can use some of these pre-trained models out of the box, and you'll do well. But what often happens with these tasks is... You're over deep deep down. You're overfitting to it, and just because you meet the task doesn't necessarily mean you've actually achieved the higher level objective. <clears throat> Computer vision really started taking off because you were getting these models that were really good at picking out cat, not cat, so on and so forth. Um, lately, a lot of the research has been much more interested in multitask learning and natural language processing. So, go back to the computer vision. Um, there's this thing called ImageNet. It's this challenge where you're trying to say that something is in one of so many categories. And it served as a benchmark for all of the all computer vision neural networks. So, that, that took off. Um, now, multitask learning and transfer learning. So, you can use these really great models that other people did. So, the structure is great. And transfer learning, you're taking this pre-trained model that somebody else built, and you're fine-tuning it for your own purposes. Basically, you pull off the last bit, you fine-tune that, and there you go. Like I used that once for picking out different types of fashion. Yeah. So because it's really easy way to go. So transfer learning, that's the transfer learning in computer vision case. Now we're on the transfer learning in NLP case. So you can, these these really great models. So what was the one OpenAI was doing? They were doing this GPT-2 model and they didn't release it to the public for fear that you could automatically generate all kinds of text and create fake news or such things. So those, <laughs> wow. I know people get, people lose their heads over all of this AI business, but you know, okay, if you, like there was somebody that caused all kinds of drama not too long ago. Um where they went and took data they shouldn't have from OKCupid okay and they trained a classifier to try to pick out if you were um heterosexual or not. So Wow. Well no, it's you know, it's it's a question. It's ethics aside, um you can do these things. It's just creativity and execution. Huh.
1: Have you ever uh, done anything like that where you go into um, a website or something and like scrape data to create uh, or gather data like that?
2: Um, So you spend long enough in machine learning and you start really, really growing this consciousness, this conscience of, um, oh, dear God, that's horrible. Nobody should ever do that. (laughs) Um, So I don't take... Data that I shouldn't from the internet um if you mostly on over to my twitter so personal project um I was really so I do pole dancing for a hobby and um i you, you know i apparently some people they do they, there are pole dance competitions of sorts so part of there are um awesome <laughs> It's purely athletic. I'm not doing the other kind of pole <laughs> dancing. Thank you very much. Uh, no, so Fair part enough. of that is you have to create a routine. And part of creating a routine is understanding how different moves flow into each other. So we have the, you do the move. So identifying the move, that's a pose estimation problem. And then you have to figure out how moves flow into each other, which you can do that as a network. You can do that as, you know, Marco models, uh, that sort of thing. So, just getting the pole dancing poses and then using that. So, you identify the pose from videos of other women performing. And then you use that to get a sequence of poses that flow into each other.
0: So, are you wow. using this to create a routine?
2: Uh, that's the idea long term. So, okay. if I have, I have a routine that goes to a certain move, well, what other moves could I do from it?
1: Okay. uh okay. Cool. So mm, that would cool. give you like um, possible routines, I guess, or like yes. uh, combinations of moves. Yes. Wow, that's interesting. So how do you do? You, so you said you working you're working with video clips. Um. So is there like video on the internet that you're you're so, using for that, or a data
2: set, or? I had to create the data set from scratch. So women will. Post, um, so here, there's this one site, I think, PoleDanceDictionary.com, and again, you can get poses from there, so I scraped those poses. I scraped poses from other places, because I had to have that for a reference data set of, this is what that pose is. Um, I used open pose out of the box in order to get the pose estimation down, so... That's that. Um, a lot of real world data science really boils down to weekly supervised learning, where you have models <laughs> that are close to what you want, but you have to use some logic or heuristics to get them all the way there.
1: Okay. Is open pose like some kind of algorithm for humans in certain positions or something?
2: Uh, human pose estimation, yes. Okay. And then,
1: so you extended that? It, was that like transfer learning? Is that, I forget the term.
2: So let's see here. So I have the poses. I run them through open pose. Open pose gives me where hands and elbows and heads and all the other body parts are. So then I have this cluster this pile of poses, this pile of body part places corresponds to this pose. Okay. So it's a cluster, so to speak.
1: Cool. So you've kind of like take in the open pose data that it interpreted from the various, you know, images that you got and then use that as kind of your basis for the videos that you feed into your training. So model.
2: those are my references for different poses. So then, okay. So if I wanted to get the choreography out, I take the video through, I run that through open pose and then I check to see, is this an actually a pose or what's going on here?
1: We, we often hear about, like, oh, you need you know tons and tons of data and lots of training to get a, an algorithm to be to a point where it's usable. Um, would you have a problem getting, like, lots of video for this? Or how many hours of video would this model have to train on?
2: So this is why we're playing with weekly supervised learning. There is no way in hell I can afford to train open pose from scratch because right. of GPU capacity and data labeling. So I was looking into having the pole dance images custom annotated. And so I, you know, I was around these annotating sites and they want at least six grand to do it. And it's I, I, I realize I am making data scientists pay. I don't quite I'm not at the point in my life where I have six grand to drop on personal projects like that. Hey, me uh, neither. <laughs> it's, I don't know who does. But um so I'm using I'm using the open post algorithm as weak supervision for me to get those labels out. It's not exact as if it had been annotated, but it's close enough. And then from there I can use that to get choreography.
1: So when you say something is annotated, you mean like some like uh, an interpretation? Or what does that mean?
2: So, a work project. So somebody calls on the phone and current employer is required by law to, if somebody is yelling on the phone, prove to regulators that the yelling on the phone has been taken care of in the case current employer has done something wrong. So, well, how do you decide if they've done something wrong? well, you need a ton and ton of data of perfectly annotated ways that current employer has done something wrong. Um, so that is, as you mentioned earlier, that's one interpretation. And that's with the natural language case. Then there's the computer vision case where it's a little clearer, where say, if you wanted to do a person head detector, you would have all of these bounding boxes around your head. So, whoop, so that way you know where the head is. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. You have to tell, you have to pick out where, what of interest is. So yes. like if you're annotating, say, countries or places, somebody has to go in there and say this word is says it's a country.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. so maybe this would involve like, uh, in the case of your, your side project, like, people that you would pay to annotate would be spending lots of time watching videos and marking like
2: if uh, if I was going to pay somebody to pick out poses yes I would have to find somebody familiar with pole dancing as a sport to look through yes this is this pose or no this is another pose and I am too cheap for that (laughs) (laughs) wow
1: um that is that is a fascinating uh, side project. Um, yeah. Have you have you had uh, other side projects that you've worked on with machine learning or data science?
2: So there is this one website. So this is this isn't a great model, but um, there's this one one website called h1bdata.info, and it's a really great place if you wanted to learn web scraping because it's very easily scrapable. You get your data out of that, and so you know, I check it every once in a blue moon. And apparently, it's you're supposed to report it to uh, US Customs and Immigration Services if somebody is, you know, being paid far beneath prevailing wage. So stuff gets posted to those sites and they check the scraper. And so, if say somebody wants to pay a data scientist, say, 50 grand a year, uh, that is. Pretty far beneath the prevailing wage, and so the bot automatically files a report with um, immigration.
1: Wow, that's uh, that's really that's cool. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Another one. I mean, you can everybody can play with crime mappers. You can play with Zillow. So, like, you can go scrape Craigslist to you know look at what's a reasonable rent. Uh. Oh, okay,
1: interesting. So, if you were going to do something like that, would you set up um? Like you know, a Flask server or something that you know does some kind of uh, scraping job, and then let it run for like hours on end, or
2: Um, I'm just using Beautiful
1: Soup. What what is that?
2: Beautiful Soup. It's a great Python web scraping package. Okay, cool. It's like the textbook one. I think I might have also used Rvest when I was playing with that sort of thing in R.
1: Okay, so if you were gonna scrape for data, would you? Uh, would you run it every so often and like get the latest postings or would you just let it run continuously? Or?
2: These things aren't updated all that often. So, you know, once a day.
1: Okay. And you would maybe do like some kind of automated process to let it run once a day and then after yep. like weeks or maybe months, you would have like a pretty sizable data set?
2: Um, You do your web scraping right and you go all the way back.
1: Well, how did, what do you mean by
2: that? So you just keep appending. Um, so if you're going to scrape this one set dimension, it'll display all the data, and you copy that at first, then you check back every so often for new data.
1: Okay, I got it. So,
2: but something like, say, if you're going to go scrape Craigslist, well, that's, you know, that tends to disappear off the map after so many days, right? Right, mm-hmm.
1: So that one would, uh, you'd have you'd a data set not. a lot faster, I guess.
2: Well, it, yeah, volume of postings.
1: Right. When you're doing these kinds of things at work, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about maybe some of the problems that you solve at work. But um, what kinds of things do businesses look to data scientists to solve for them?
2: I'd say I'd say most of my work boils down to not necessarily automating away jobs. But helping people to be much more efficient at jobs, and when this happens, it's it's generally with things that are mind-numbing and boring. Like for, <laughs> well, no, it's for regulatory compliance. Um, you have to go through tons and tons and tons of things and identify anything that could possibly affect regulatory compliance. Otherwise, you're faced with you know all kinds of fines from the government. So it's a terribly mind-numbing job. Nobody should ever be doing this kind of job in the first place, but it has to get done. And so, well, do you use the human to look through all of them, or do you send the ones that the machine learning isn't sure about to the human? So let's let's talk hypothetical. Suppose that there are these people, salespeople, and salespeople take notes, and oh say you have a relationship with that salesperson, they're your personal banker or something like that. Um, somebody has to go through these notes to make sure that there are things that there shouldn't be there in these notes. So, well, how do you do that? Well, you can have machine learning do it. Or...
1: Or basically hire somebody to do it. Right. Spend spend a lot of boring, uh, you know, man hours reading through documents and that sort of thing. Right. Cool. For anybody that's kind of looking to get into data science, uh, maybe they are coming out of high school or something like that, Um, or maybe they're already programmers and have like a computer science background, Uh, what kind of advice would you have for somebody that's looking to get into this kind
2: of field? So there are a lot of people that see, oh, data scientists are paid a sickening amount of money, and they want to get into it, so they sign up for some kind of graduate degree and masters of data science or something like that and what happens is they're confronted with they don't want to code, they don't want to do math and unfortunately that's that's why the pay is there because not only are you doing math, not only are you doing code, you are doing math so if you want to get into this, you have to put in the hours of getting good at both code and math so it. You know, you know, you want to be a data scientist. You're 18 hitting high school. You know, you are hitting college. You know, you want to be a data scientist. Load up on math, stats and code. Um, I'd prioritize stats just because. And if you're already past that point, this goes back to three different ways we can, can get in. So you can go be a business analyst, data analyst, and then try to take up coding and try to take up math. And that'll get you more towards data science. Um, there is the computer science background guys that, okay, you need to go pick up machine learning. And you don't need the real analysis. Real analysis and stuff is important, in my opinion. But unless you're going to be writing proofs or you are in a job where you could be theoretically called on the carpet to write proofs, you don't really need it. Um, but you do have to understand why machine learning models and such work the way that they do. And the third route to come in is, well, my route where I kept doing stats and then I took up enough code to become useful. So.
1: Okay. So when you talk about writing proofs, you mean like mathematical proofs?
2: Yep. So, so justifying
1: the algorithm that you get at the end?
2: So if you're, let's go to a linear regression case. Well, you. Have, you want to talk about confidence bounds around these estimates, right? So that is all kinds of um, theory. Okay. So how do we know for sure that that estimator actually does converge to this mean point? Things like that. So I can go pick up old asymptotic proofs, but I don't really want to.
1: I don't, does does anybody, I don't, maybe there's somebody that's like really into it, but.
2: Uh, stats academics.
1: Okay. (laughs) So, um, for people that are maybe, cause we, I think we have a lot of listeners that are maybe more comfortable with coding than with math. Um, do you have any recommendations for maybe how to, you know, pick up some of the statistics knowledge outside of like going to college and getting a degree in mathematics?
2: If you call yourself a statistician, fundamentally your only real job is to not get confused by randomness. And it's a very, very hard thing. It really is, because people confuse themselves so often with whatnot, kinds of cognitive biases and such. So if you want to understand how to think like a data scientist, I would start by reading the entire Um, non-technical works of Nassim Taleb and it's just it'll get you started on thinking particularly fooled by randomness.
1: Okay so maybe a really stupid example of this would be like if you flip a coin and you flip it a hundred times and each time it lands on heads you might think that there's a higher chance of getting a tails on the next flip but really that's not true it's still going to be a 50-50 chance.
2: No, I'd say that was really conclusive evidence that you're flipping a bad coin. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting take on it. (laughs) Well, no, that is what inference is deep down. So we have our null hypothesis and our alternative hypothesis, and we're not trying to prove things. You can't prove things this way. But so we're going to, as a null hypothesis, assume that this is an unbiased coin, that with you know, probably heads or tails of, say, 50-50. And our alternative hypothesis is going to be that this is a bad coin. And if I flipped a coin a 100 times and it wound up on heads every single time, I would find that to be really compelling evidence that this is not an unbiased coin. Wow. Yeah, I, w- I would not have thought of it that way, but
1: that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um <laughs> So um, in the, the realm of statistics, uh, what are some of the most common things that you reach for? Um, is there like certain areas that people should really focus on or?
2: So for people that want to be professional data scientists, um, you can make a very pushy living in finance and insurance. And 99% of the time, you will only need logistic regression.
1: Okay, so that's, I guess, I'm not a statistician, but um, that is one area of statistics that you could study?
2: That would, so, I mean, there are prerequisite courses, but I would say, yeah, that's what pays the bills if you are in finance or insurance.
1: Okay, excellent. So there's there's a lot of um, kind of like pre-built solutions, and we had talked about some already, like uh, pre-built models and that sort of thing. Um, but now some of, uh, the bigger tech companies are offering like, uh, automated, not automated, but like their own machine learning services. So, um, Google, I guess has auto ML and AWS has like recognition. Um, have you had any experience with those types of things?
2: I like recognition. So recognition is great for, Big tech companies are really, really great and they have virtually infinite resources to throw at some of these problems. And, you know, if you're going to try to run a business, your core competency is not going to be a generic out-of-the-box model that Google, Amazon, whoever can beat you on. So I like recognition. I think recognition is great for, say, you wanted to pick out the color of somebody's eyeballs or you wanted a license plate reader or something like that. Recognition is fantastic for that. As far as automated machine learning, so, sure, you can you can do that. You can break out H2O.ai, and you can break out your data robot, you can break out your automated ML, you can your own automated ML. So, I think I was posting in the ODEVs chat the other day, there was this one guy that ran through every possible algorithm sitting in SK Learn. So, you can do that. Um... And it's fine. So if you are non-technical and you want to get into it out of the box and you want to pay God knows how much money for H2O's driverless AI, yes, you can plug and chug it in there. Um, It misses the art of data science, and the art of data science really is feature engineering. So without a cleverly created feature, H2O can't perform all that well.
1: Okay. So recognition is something that has like its own uh models that i guess amazon has trained up and yep you kind of like you have easy access to those through that service if
2: you want to pay amazon you you get
1: it (laughs) okay and then things like you're talking about with like h2o that's uh is that a program that you license or
2: uh you pay h2o heaven knows how much money for (laughs) a license of their driverless AI but you know you get it and the 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 idea is using that you can convert your data analysts into being machine learning people okay have you um
1: had any done any work or messed with uh something called teapot
2: what is teapot
1: uh we had seen it um at this python event that we had uh sponsored but Basically, it seemed like it took a data set and created an a model from it automatically.
2: Okay, so one of those automated ML tools where you say this is the data, this is the target and it just runs.
1: Yeah, you just let it run for hours on end and it kind of like refines a an algorithm.
2: That yeah, that's same thing as DataRobot, H2O, Driverless AI.
1: Okay. So that's kind of like the kind of taking the data scientists out of the data science in a way it kind of like creates a on its own <laughs> they Auto- automating the
2: automators. <laughs> they can try. I'm not convinced they'll win, but I don't know. Life would be a better place. if People weren't stuck in some of those more boring tasks. Right.
1: Interesting. So um, are, are those things good to use or uh, when, maybe when would you reach for an automated machine learning library like that?
2: I really liked using H2O driverless AI as a final step to geek out as much performance as possible after I'd already done all the feature engineering work.
1: So you could use something like that and give it a model that you've already created and it would kind of I make would it better? I just give them or? all the
2: features I already made. Okay. So if I'm prototyping and trying to get something out the door, I'll use a quick model to see how it's going. But I don't feel like, you know, doing every possible thing that could be done with XGBoost. So I really see it as sort of enhanced parameter tuning. Because I don't have the patience to go through all those parameters.
1: Okay. Eddie, do you have any any other questions? No, this is all over my head. Yeah, it's a little bit on me too. But that's okay. <laughs> do I need to go back
2: and explain things?
1: Uh no, sir. well how about um, the last time we talked about the the automated uh, automated machine learning? Um, you said you were talking about parameters. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. So, like specifically, like what what does that mean when you say you create the features and then you have it do the last step?
2: So I'll give an example. So suppose you wanted to figure out how long it took somebody to how long it took between somebody checking in a restaurant and how long it took before they were seated. So you know when they check in, you know when they leave, and you know when they're seated. And so what else, you know, you you know the party size, you know the table, so on and so forth. Um, well, you can feed all of those features in there directly, and it's not going to do a very good job. But there's a key really important feature that you can create. So what determines how long you're going to be waiting in line? The number of people waiting in front of you. So you only know when somebody checks in is seated and leaves. So it's a queuing process where you have one queue waiting to be seated and then you have the other queue where they're eating. Okay. So you had to figure out how many people are waiting in line before you could be seated. And that was where the killer really informative feature was versus, you know, just feeding in all of this random data in there. So that's an example where you have this feature creation being really, really important. And it's a simple thing. If you, you know, go ask a waitress, well, they can tell you.
1: Okay. Is that part something that you would do as the data scientist or that like the automated machine learning would do?
2: I have never seen automated machine learning get something that simple. So, it can automatically do, say, multiply these features together, scale the feature. So, you divide it by, it's, you divide it by, say, the standard deviation, and then you subtract the mean or something like that. They multiply them together in all kinds of different ways just to see if they can get something out, uh, that sort of thing.
1: Okay, but for maybe the more, um, Complicated types of prediction or
2: For a more uh, complicated transform, you're not going to have that fully automated. So And that's
1: where you would come in as the data scientist and
2: something like that. So one of the textbook web problems. So suppose you wanted to de identify somebody across platforms. So that's a really straightforward graph problem, but you're not going to get that kind of graph work in an automated pool.
1: Okay. So at the end of every show, we do a little segment where we just kind of talk about, um, things that we're into, uh, books that we've read or TV shows that we like or anything, uh, in that, in that sort of realm. So we call it nerd Minute. And, uh, since you're okay. the guest, is there, um, anything that you've been enjoying or reading or watching lately?
2: You're implying I have time in my hands for that sort of thing. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, I finally finished a playthrough of Divinity Original Sin 2. That ending was terrible. Okay. Um, So are you
1: a a big RPG fan?
2: No, it's... (laughs) But it's, you know, can I really justify seeing all those hours of my life spent on this game? And it's... uh, I don't know. I need a new game, guys. So either RPGs or... Strategy games like say Surviving Mars or Europa Universalis or how can games for me?
1: Uh, so I, I I'm in the same boat. I haven't had a ton of time to play. Yeah, same. Here. Uh, a lot of stuff, but um, as far as like strategy games, uh, uh, there was this one that I played. Um, it was kind of like a it was a real time strategy, but it was pared down to be very simple, and it had okay. um. It was like uh flower petals and you it was almost like flowers and the petals on the flower could then invade other flowers, and so it was kind of like this resource management strategy type of game. Okay. Oh, yeah. But I can't think of the name of it off the <laughs> top of my head. Um, I'd be interested to know what you thought of Divinity. Uh I've had it on my wish list for a long time but never picked it up.
2: Mm-hmm. DOS 2 was really really addictive for me just because you know there's the whole the storyline is amazing. The ending is garbage, but the storyline <laughs> is amazing. Um I I like throwing fireballs at people after a long day in the office. <laughs> um That's great. It's a great game, seriously. Really, really compelling storyline. And it has a fair amount of replayability because you, you know, so I like to play it where I've got my one main character and then I've got one of the story characters and I go through so I get to milk the storyline out of the other main character. And the, some of them are really compelling.
1: Awesome. Cool. Yeah, for anybody that's uh, never heard of Divinity out there it's a uh, an isometric uh, strategy RPG um, where you kind of get a party of adventurers and uh, go through a, a campaign, um, and I don't recall if you get to create your own character or how that works. You can.
2: You don't have to, but you can.
1: Did you create your own character?
2: I have to throw fireballs at people.
1: So you, <laughs> I guess you made a a, a wizard or, or a mage or something, <laughs> something like that.
2: No, it's another great thing about the player design. There is that you're not stuck to being just being a mage, so you can. You can like throw fireballs at people and then you can turn around without a sword or cool. So you can
1: kind of do your own custom build, I guess, of your within
2: character. the realm of the within what's possible, yes.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, I couldn't I don't think I could tell you the last RPG I played. It's been a it's been a while.
0: Yeah, it's hard to really. find good
1: ones. I know they take so much time to get into, you know. Um What about you, Eddie? Have you have you gotten into anything lately?
0: No, but your RPG question, I think Mass Effect was like the last thing I played I really liked.
1: I did I did enjoy Mass Effect. Yeah. Um it's very light on the RPG elements and yeah. it's more of an yeah. action y kind of game, but it has this sprawling multi part campaign across, you know, three games.
0: Yeah. Uh but as far as new stuff, um haven't played anything. I'm still watching Mindhunter. You brought it up uh, <laughs> in another episode. I have like half of the last episode left. <laughs> awesome, I, I didn't finish it yet, but it it's been pretty good. Yeah, and I uh, still, I have like an episode left of Chernobyl. Have you seen that?
1: I watched like the first episode.
0: It's really good. It's, uh, that show is really good.
1: That one uh, was a uh, very tough to watch because of all the things that were happening and kind of like everything that was being ignored in the reactor. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. It gets kind of like worse too. <laughs> the
1: hubris of the, I guess the, uh, the, the reactor. Oh, yeah. Okay. The, that, that too. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was, I, I hope it didn't happen that way. That's
0: terrible. It, uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of want to watch a documentary when this is done. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, definitely. that's it for me.
1: Cool. Um, Amelia, if you're not familiar with uh, with Mind Hunter, that's a, a Netflix show about FBI profilers.
2: So criminal minds, but for Netflix.
1: Exactly, kind of, but I I think it's uh, I don't but know like it's the start story. of
0: Criminal Minds, like that start the start of that whole department and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah I think it is. It set in the '60s. It's or- uh, '70s. I want to say. Yeah, it was like before oh, there 70s? were. FBI profilers it's the kind of the start of that division of the FBI
0: yeah
2: see this is why you all need to get into the to lab. he's going to hear those people a new one
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not gonna lie I'm, I'm excited to to read um some of his stuff especially that that book that you mentioned Fooled by Randomness I I think I'm definitely going to check that one out so Amelia I mean, <laughs> she's throwing <laughs> thumbs up um, all right well um Amelia, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. We, we had a blast interviewing you and you are a brilliant data scientist and, <laughs> uh, we, we loved having you and thank you for breaking down some of those concepts.
2: Um, of course. Thank you for having me. All
1: right. Bye. We will, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you.
2: Yep. All right. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Head on over to our site at techjr.dev for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, click subscribe to get an email from us once a week with the latest episode and some other goodies. Please follow us on Twitter at TechJR Podcast. You can follow me at Leewar Jr. and Eddie at ED0TER0. Uh, Send us a tweet. Let us know what you think. Join us next week. We are taking a break from the interviews. got a lot of great shows coming up but uh it's been about a year since eddie and i have been developers and so we made an episode about that and talked about uh all the different things that we've learned and how our perspective has changed on development being uh in the field for a year as opposed to coming in fresh so check that one out next wednesday all right that's all for me this week Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.